to GNT, the podcast from political blog, The Groucho Tendency. Hi guys, it's Mike Indian from The Groucho Tendency here. I hope you're well as we're entering week six of the lockdown here in the UK. I was lucky enough to be able to speak to the Leicester Secular Society on the 24th of April about the role of big government in responding to times of crisis. The reason that I was asked to give the talk is because the society has an unbroken chain of talks going back um, into the 19th century and they were looking for guest speakers to keep this going. The reason I chose the topic as well is because we've seen an expansion of state power on a level that few of us would even have imagined um, five years ago, let alone a hundred years ago. So I used the chance to take a historical perspective on the last 120 years or so of UK government spending and behaviour and to see how big government responds in times of crisis. You can listen to the talk uh, shortly in this podcast and we've got another great one coming up later this week with Stephen Lynch who is a former Conservative advisor about how he feels the Treasury and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak are going to respond through economic means but also future fiscal decisions including raising taxes. Um, If you like this please do share it and leave us a rating and I hope to see you all soon. Hello, everybody, and good evening. Thank you very much for having me um, along tonight. Uh, uh, my name is Mike Indian. I am a political journalist and commentator. One of the things that it's quite exciting actually to talk about to talk to you all tonight, not only because it breaks up the tedium of of being in lockdown, but also I came to your talk last week on on George Fox, and it was really interesting. So it's great that Gillian has let me come along tonight to talk to you all about the shape of the British state. I've just by way of background, I've been a a journalist for about 10 years now. It's all I've ever really done. I I love politics. I love working and covering politics. It's been a very exciting time to do that. One of the things that's been unusual about the time in which I've done it is, is that the fact that the shape of the state and the extent of the British government's reach into our everyday lives has been something that has been very much at the forefront of debate. When I started covering politics, it was at the tail end of the Labour government from two thousand, from 1997 to 2010. And the coalition coming in and, and, the, and unusually, as we'll see over the course of this talk, the government made a smaller state something of a priority from the moment it took office. Ironically, the actions of the last few weeks, as we'll see, have unpicked a lot of that work. But the title of this presentation is going to be Getting Used to Big Government, the British State in Times of Crisis. So I wanted to begin with a quote that I found while doing a bit of background reading for this. Um, The dreadful truth is that when people come to see their MP, they have run out of better ideas. Not only is it, I thought it was a funny quote, but also the person who said it took me by surprise because it was none other than the Prime Minister himself. Now, <laughs> obviously, this was long before Boris Johnson actually became Prime Minister from his long and very colourful history as a journalist. But that, to me, seemed to sum up the, the sort of classic Tory attitude, if you will, to to big government and to the fact that people often looked to their MP when they felt they had no other route to turn. And that sort of theme of the government being the last resort, the sort of the, the final actor on which people could fall back on, 
has been something I think we've really seen, particularly in the last few weeks, the last month and a half, as as the whole country has been coming to terms with the pandemic. And indeed, around the world, where governments are having to exercise, particularly in uh, liberal democracies, greater control over their citizens' lives than has ever really been seen before in peacetime. So just a, a quote from Boris Johnson there to kind of set some some context to the background for this talk. But what is big government? It's not actually a, a British term. It's more often uh, used in US politics as a term of abuse. Americans famously favour a smaller state to to ours. They tend to prefer they tend to prefer government keeping out of their lives day to day. There isn't a welfare state in America. There isn't a, really anything to do with a, a sort of a nationalised health service. But it's a term of abuse, really, in American politics. And it's used to criticise what they see as an overly interventionist or excessively bureaucratic state or branch of its operations. So th- something that's actually seen in that context is actually impinging on the day to day rights of a state citizens. But in the UK, I think I'd argue it actually means something quite different because European countries and Britain in particular we're used to quite large governments to quite interventionist governments in our lives I would say and when we talk about big government we're really talking about two different things firstly we're going to look at the size of the state probably you know best indicated by public spending how much money the government spends day to day and that has dramatically changed over the last hundred years or so but at the same time as that we've also seen a real change in how governments behave. They've become more interventionist. They've begun to put themselves into areas of people's lives, which, quite frankly, you know, if people believe in small government, they believe they have no business in being. But actually, particularly in this country, we've just come to accept, particularly in the last 70 years, as normality. So the question I kind of want to look at in this talk is, has the concept of big government, an interventionist government particularly, always been always come about in response to crises throughout history so just a, a quick sort of bit of background on the history of british big government it's actually a comparatively recent thing historically and i've got a chart on the next page to kind of illustrate that and the reason for that is is that for most of history the uk has had a particularly strong center of government this goes back to sort of the medieval times of the exchequer when the function of the state was to collect revenue for the monarchy, for the government as it became. But that was really about it. You know, the the functions of a central government were all about raising revenue for the crown. But this sort of central state apparatus has been a a key theme of Britain's political history throughout its time. It's something that particularly drew, it was a big attraction for the Norman Conquest when William the Conqueror came over. It's something that Henry II built on when he put in place the basis of what we might understand to be the modern civil service with trained bureaucrats running things. It's something that enabled, um, in Tudor times, uh, Thomas Cromwell, if you're like me, you've just finished reading the new Hilary Mantel book, to sort of exercise that degree of um, control in breaking with Rome. So the UK has always had a very strong central state but throughout most of that period the state has behaved in a very unusual way and i think if we the best indication of this is if we go up to look at about a hundred years or so ago and look at public spending as a share of uk's gross domestic produce or gdp so at the turn of the century in 1900 it accounted for only 12 percent of uk gdp basically you know that we had a small government and a large chunk of that as we'll see was spent on areas which we wouldn't, you know, really think of as relevant today, particularly defence. By the time we get to the, st- the end of the last decade, though, at the end of the financial crisis, where it's, it's, it's massively increased, it's gone up to nearly half of UK GDP. And of that, of course, was at the, the peak of the UK 
financial crisis. And it's something that really has been hotly debated over the last 10 years or so because the the current conservative government came into office in 2010 pledging to shrink the state and if we look at the figures for the last decade or so we can certainly see that they have succeeded in doing that you know it's gone down from nearly half to just under 40 percent of uk gdp and this is probably as good an indication as any of how actually the government have changed over the last 100 years or so. So Lord Salisbury was the Prime Minister way back in 1900. He was Queen Victoria's last Prime Minister. He was Prime Minister three times and died the year after he left office. But he, he said this, it's difficult enough to go to go around doing what is right without going around trying to do good. So that's the attitude of the man who was running the UK government just over 100 years ago. Governments had no business trying to sort of morally intervene in people's lives. They needed to do what was necessary for the state, which is primarily as we'll see defined in terms of national security, defence, protecting the realm, not trying to make people's lives better. So just for a bit of perspective here, we have a chart indicating UK government spending as a total percentage of GDP over the last 100 years or so. And if we go back to right at the beginning in uh, 1900, we can see there that Lord Salisbury's government, it's 12%. It's tiny. We go through the first decade and a half and then we get to the First World War. And that explosion you can see there is really accounting for um, First World War and the, and the increase in defence spending that was necessitated for that. But something interesting happens in the interwar period. You can see that the spending there has increased by, you know, over 10 percent. It sort of hovers between 27 to 30 percent in the interwar period. It doesn't go back down again. So even though the, the state has spending has dropped off after the war, it still is higher than it is before the war. And that's because, as we'll see, the governments at the time had implemented more welfare reforms that came about because of Lloyd George's chancellor. We then go along to about 1939. State spending shoots up again during the Second World War, drops back again, but still stays at a higher level. But then something even more interesting happens in the post-Second World War period. The shape of the state remains largely consistent throughout this period, hovering just about 40%, depending on which governments are in office. You can see the period of the post-war consensus there from 1945 through to 1979. That little dip there you can see is, of course, when Margaret Thatcher comes into office. But even then, the state doesn't shrink back to the same level that it was pre-war. It's still around 35% there. It picks up again in the early 90s, remains reasonably steady. And the steady rise you can see there, picking up to the, to the last peak, is the new Labour government where they're growing the economy uh, and they're also putting that proceeds into increasing public spending as well. And then we can see the steady decline that's taken place over the last 10 years or so under the Conservative-led coalition and then the Conservative majority governments that have been in office over that period. But where has big government in these periods grown? Well, you might think, of course, looking at those peaks, they account for, you know, we've got to think about defence spending as that. But if we take the long view, actually, it isn't true. So in 1900, 6.5% of uh, defence spending counted for 6.5% of GDP. In 2020, it's 2.3%. And that's just in line with meeting our NATO commitment there. And that's even then, that's a lot of, you know, chicanery on behalf of the Treasury to get to that period. So that sort of emphasis on sort of conventional national security, the role of the state in defending people has declined over that period, despite the fact that the biggest periods of government spending we see are during the wars. But that falls off very quickly. And particularly in the post-war period, there are large cuts to defence spending. As you can see, we can't just define big government in terms of how the government spends its money. We've also got to look where that money is spent as well. And of course, the things that have increased in that post-war period, the things that account for the real 
big increase, the consistent shape of the state that we've seen pretty much since 1945, of course, have been social spending. So first of all, the growth of state education. In 1900, only 2% of GDP was roughly spent on education. In 2020, it's 6%. In 1900, 0.3% is spent on health. It's 7.1% in 2020. And welfare and pensions, by far and away the biggest increase there, less than 1% in 1900. In 2020, 15%. So the old age pensions aspect of the government is probably the single biggest thing the government spends money on today. But those are the areas in which the government has come to change its behaviour in. The state over that 120 year period has decided to make it its business to intervene in these areas of lives to ensure that people enjoy some sort of better improvement from cradle to grave as very much embodied in the National Health Service and the welfare state. This all really began though It wasn't really to do with spending. It was a conscious political decision to begin to intervene in people's lives. And it all really began with this man, David Lloyd George, who was a key architect in the new liberal government of 1905 to 1916. So David Lloyd George held numerous posts in this position. He was president of the Board of Trade when they first came into office, but it's more pertinent to talk about his period as Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1908 to 1915, because in that period, he implements a lot of the things that we would recognise today as being the core of the basic welfare state. And the, the two things he does that are particularly interesting in this period are pushing through old age pensions, but also to pay for it via a super tax on the wealthy, so that Jeremy Corbyn probably would very much have liked to do in that period as well. The new Liberals came into office as a big break with the Gladstonian Liberals in this period because they believed in actually using the power of the state to better their lives. At the same time of this, they were closely allied to the Independent Labour Party, but they weren't socialists. They kind of grew out of the non-conformist tradition quite heavily in, in the West country. In fact, a lot of Labour's leading figures in the latter half of the 20th century, for example, Michael Foote, they came from this sort of West country liberal tradition. So rather than sort of conventional intellectual socialism, um, Clement Attlee was another one of these as well. So Lloyd George is a chancellor in this period. Although he does massively increase government spending, he begins to put a new ethos into British government, whereby it is now the the business of the state to look after the most vulnerable and needy in society. So other things he does during his period in office, he puts in labour exchanges, national insurance for the sick. When he's made Minister for Munitions in 1915 to 1916, this is ironically his most important post because this is when the state begins to behave in a very different way. Up until this point, uh, Britain had been, for example, doing quite badly in the First World War. We weren't getting the ammunition shells that we needed to the front line. Lloyd George took on not just what we might recognise as a command economy, but also employed quite interesting behavioural policies to try and get people to be more productive at work. So it wasn't just the government running munitions factories, for example, at Gretna Green in Scotland, but it's also you see them implementing pub opening hours and daylight savings time and even, for example, watering the workers' beer as well, which is probably didn't go down exactly well. But that's an example of, you know, the first really big surge of big government in this country. It's not just to do with how much money the government's spending, but how the government's behaving. And David Lloyd George is the first example of a statesman in Britain who really starts to take an interest in how government can make people's lives different. Not necessarily better, but different in many ways. And of course, we're all still with pub, we still have pub opening hours and daylight savings time today. So what happens when we get to the interwar period then? Well, public spending after the First World War remains quite steady. We're around uh, 27 to 30% of UK GDP is accounted for by government spending. So 
This is quite an interesting period because we have the Great Depression coming in at this point, but we also have the first Labour governments under Ramsay MacDonald there, and the first socialist governments as well. And, you know, although the first Labour government is only in office for a few months, in 1929-31, they are in office again, and the Great Depression hits. And interestingly here, Ramsay MacDonald at the time had an individual in his cabinet called Oswald Mosley, who proposed in response to the Great Depression something quite similar to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. Large programs of public works, increased stimulus spending, you call it Keynesian economics today. Interestingly though, Ramsay MacDonald and his team opted for what you might call the financial orthodoxy of the Treasury, and instead chose to try and cut spending as a way of bringing the UK back into line because they were concerned by the amount of money the government was spending on unemployment benefits because unemployment had reached roughly 40% or so during this period. This, of course, meant that, you know, this led to the famous split and it uh, meant that Ramsay MacDonald uh, is now seen as something, something of, a, 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 of a mocked figure on the left. He's somebody who's seen as a bit of a black sheep, a, tra- a traitor to the Labour Party. But he ends up leading a national government between 1931 and 1935 because he looks to keep the size of the state contained during this period, which marks about something of an anomaly when we get to people who followed him in office then as well. But then, of course, after the interwar period, we get to the Second World War. And this is really when we start to see people beginning to understand that there is a real appetite, I think, for government in people's lives intervening to try and improve the basic standards of living. So, first of all, during the war, we see a massive massive expansion of infant, child and maternity services. We see fuel grants, subsidised milk and free school meals also expanded during this period. A lot of this is happening under the direction of Labour's then leader and the Deputy Prime Minister in the wartime coalition, Clement Attlee. We see supplementary pensions and unemployment assistance also expanded, something that, you know, ironically we've seen Rishi Sunak doing in expanding the welfare state for those people who need support during COVID-19. We also see an emergency hospital service as well. But this, all of this is embodied in the landmark publication of the report under William Beveridge, which of course forms the basis for the welfare state. Interestingly, though, you'd think that this is a degree of scope and popularity for a sort of five to six year period. People get used to it. They like it in their lives. The government looks at what it's doing and recognises that a lot of these evils, particularly tackling the five great evils, can be expanded after the Second World War and taken on into peacetime. But of course, again, I come back to this point that the interventionist aspect of the state remains a political choice because at the end of the Second World War, Winston Churchill lost, arguably lost the 1945 general election on the back of the fact that he claimed that some form of Gestapo would be required to enforce the National Health Service in particular. The Conservative government at that time were opposed to it, even though they didn't unpick it when they came back into office. Of course, then we get to 1945 to 51 and the government that so many people credit with you know, the foundation for the post-war consensus under Clement Attlee. So most famously, of course, the National Health Service is founded during this period, the nationalisation of all hospitals, bringing them in that famous line from Manaya and Bevan, I stuffed their mouths with gold. The government's unafraid to spend money where it needs to. Man, this is happening in the post-war period where the UK's um, debt is about 200% of GDP at this period. We're relying on American loans. There's a very famous story of John Maynard Keynes having to go over to America during this period to actually acquire support and assistance from the Americans as well. But the National Health Service still managed to get up and running under the Socialist Labour government of this period. They also expand national insurance in order to increase welfare during this period as well. That was begun under Lloyd George, but it's massively expanded under this Labour government. 
We also see work and safety and sick pay entitlement also moved out to, so workers are getting more rights too. The regulatory aspect of the state is a really interesting one because, of course, you're thinking, well, as long as there have been, has been government, it has been interfering in private actions. But we've got to remember that the 20th century is where we see the shift, where, you know, we've talked about before the state is primarily a revenue collection agency or they might be dealing with, you know, um, private actors or private companies. Even in the 19th century, social betterment is still primarily the result of philanthropy. You know, you've got poor relief, but it's still, you know, there are the workhouses. The government isn't taking an interest in ensuring its citizens have better lives as a result. These are not concepts that would have been around in 1850. So in 1950, the the government, even then, it's a political choice for this government to try and expand these provisions using the beverage report as well. Legal aid comes into this position as well. So, of course, we see, you know, the state, of course, has been running criminal justice, but now we see the poorest um, are allowed access to funds so they can have legal representation when they need it to. And we also see, interestingly, another key part of the post-war consensus that doesn't last in the nationalisation of key industries during this period as well. Most notably, coal mines, the railways, the Bank of England. All of these entities are taken into public ownership. So this is the second big burst of big government here. Although it started during the war, it's a political choice by the Attlee government to maintain it in the post-war period. Now, of course, you'd think during this time, for example, although the Conservatives ran against, say, the National Health Service and the Welfare State in 1945, that they would look to unpick it. But it doesn't. It lasts until 1979. Even, you know, they're still wrangling over things like nationalisation of key UK industries like steel. But big government in this form survives for almost 30 years, as it were. So let's take a quick skip over the remaining half of the 20th century there. So state spending as a share of GDP remains fairly consistent over this period, hovering around an average of 40%. It does peak above that, it does drop low, but it remains within a fairly stable range of about 35 to 42% until around the end of the 20th century. Of course, Margaret Thatcher comes in in 1979, and she's often vilified for trying to roll back the state and, you know, People say that she shouldn't have done that. Of course, again, that's a political choice. She breaks with most of her conservative predecessors and chooses to roll back the scope of the state. But we've got to remember that although the government did push through cuts, most key foundations of the welfare state and the NHS and pensions, they survive this period. Thatcher doesn't try and turn back the clock to post-1939. Even though UK spending, state spending shrinks the share of GDP, it doesn't go as low as it did before the war. Instead, the things we don't see survive, we see the government change its behaviour from wanting to run industries to instead taking more of an interest in how to support them, how to encourage them. In Thatcher's case, the state chooses to step back. That's a conscious choice for her to shrink government and step back from a regulatory element here. But even then, it's the reversing nationalisations that are really her target and the privatisations that are the bits that have stuck even to this day. Of course, at that time, the UK is shifting its economic philosophy as well from Keynesism to neoliberalism and the free market. And during Thatcher's period, this is the defining aspect of her policies. And of course, that's picked up when the Blair government comes into office in 1997. State spending ticks up again in the early 90s as a result of Black Wednesday and the recession. But as the economy begins to return to growth, when the Labour government comes back into office for the first time since 1979 in 1997, they don't increase taxes. And actually, initially, for the first couple of years, they keep state spending under restraint. They don't look to massively expand the reach of the government. What they do do instead is take more interventions, for example, during the minimum wage, for example, during this period. This is still an example of how the state has grown consistently, but they don't do anything radically different. And even when spending starts to tick up again during the early noughties, so from 2002 to the end of the decade, that's initially done because the economy is undergoing a record 
period of growth. The government hasn't raised taxes. It hasn't taken a conscious decision. It's instead choosing to keep the shape of the state in line with the increasing size of the economy. And that's because there are more funds around. They're putting health spending into it. Whereas in most of the last period, the economy has enjoyed relatively low growth or periods of contraction. So that's something we've got to bear in mind. And then, of course, we get to the first real 21st century economic crisis in the financial crisis of 2008 to 9. And this presents a real difficulty for the Labour government of the period, because for the first time we see the government changing tack. Previously, we've seen big government in response to major national security crises here. Even every step up big government has taken throughout the, you know, the last hundred years or so happened due to the First World War as a catalyst and the Second World War. And whilst defence has declined and behaviour of government has changed, Big government in this period has still been defined largely by external threats. For the first time, though, we see the government behaving in a very different way. And this is intervening to prop up the key pillars of market economies, in this case, the financial sector. Bank rescue package included loans to banks, capital investment, the government actually taking part nationalisation and shares, but only as a means of stabilising those institutions. In fact, one of the things that's often thrown around incorrectly here is the amount of money that's spent here. Um, Jeremy Hunt, for example, when he ran for the Tory leadership contest last year, said the government had spent around £1 trillion bailing out the banks. That actually isn't true. According to figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility, that's the government's independent fiscal watchdog, only about £137 billion was spent bailing out the banks. And we only have to get around about um, £27 billion of that back according to the investment and of course we don't hold shares in Lloyd's group anymore so the government's moved past that particular element but interesting here the ho- is it's not so much the amount of money that's spent but it's the change in behavior the government here is undertaking a large-scale intervention designed to preserve the status quo of a neoliberal market that has never happened before until this period and now not only has it happened once within sort of 10 to 12 years, it's happened twice, as this is the behaviour that we're seeing with this government in the coronavirus pandemic response undertaken by Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. So by the time Labour leave office in 2010, state spending has reached around about 43% of GDP, which is you know significantly high. But this is the, the, the context and the backdrop to what comes next, because unusually in response to crises, we've seen governments maintain a level of spending to try and get the UK through it. And even during the post-war consensus, the, state, the shape of the state remains largely the same, even under Thatcherism, it doesn't decline. However, the coalition government comes into office in 2010 and they take a very different view of this. So David Cameron and Nick Clegg's guiding philosophy was this. We share a conviction that the days of big government are over, that centralisation and top-down control have proved a failure. That was one of the key lines from the Coalition Programme for Government in 2010, the joint programme from the Conservatives and the Orange Book, that's the sort of relatively free market Liberal Democrats, their guiding philosophy. Interestingly, they've named big government as one of the things they're targeting here. Now, you you might be thinking, well, we've just come out of a major economic crisis, but actually, instead, they're choosing to believe that it's the shape, the shape of the state has to change here in order for the UK to remain viable to international money markets. Now, you can argue whether or not this was a true, you know, whether or not this is true or not, but sufficient numbers of people bought into it 10 to 12 years ago. Austerity at the time was broadly popular, even though when people began to realise what it meant for them and the shape, the, the state was really contracting for the first time for many people, including my generation, within living memory. So let's take a look at exactly what happened during this period. We heard a lot of talk about 
from the coalition about deficit reduction. The deficit is different to national debt. The deficit is the difference between the amount the UK government spends and the amount it actually raises in tax. So when the government came in in 2010, the coalition, the deficit was around about £103 billion. Now, for a bit of context, it was around about half that level just prior to the financial crisis. So around about £50 billion. So £103 billion was the, de- was the deficit then. What we then saw was a significant rolling back of the state, particularly in relation to things like welfare payments and, and sort of capping spending as well. And by the time that we got to the end of this year, the, the Conservatives could argue have been said to have achieved their goal of bringing the deficit down. Although the national debt rose over this period, they have brought the deficit down. And last year, the UK was abound just under £20 billion in surplus. So that was their guiding philosophy for shrinking the state, a purely fiscal measure. But many people argue there was an ideological basis to it as well, particularly given David Cameron's big society at the time. And it's quite unusual, as you've seen in the context of it, for big government not to remain in effect there. They've even checked it and used it in its sort of more pejorative sense to use it in a negative way, seeing that it was, you know, the the common refrain during this period was blaming Labour's profligacy, saying that they had... Uh, hadn't managed the books well, sold the gold, crashed the economy. These are still sound bites you can hear in the House of Commons today. My personal favourite was Nick Clegg's prawn cocktail charm offensive in the city. So we enter COVID-19 now. So we have had a decade or so of austerity. Uh, again, a political choice made, I would argue, there to shrink the state rather than necessarily a financial or uh, economic one. And now we have the man who has probably exercised more control of any chancellor since uh, the end of the Second World War, uh, Rishi Sunak there. So the UK budget deficit this year, but prior to the spending that would have been undertaken for the COVID-19 pandemic, was estimated to be about £1.7 billion in surplus. So we've seen a slight decline in that surplus there. And that's, you know, the government using the headroom for the election there for some spending pledges. But still the Tories trying to keep a relatively tight control on the shape of the state there. The 2019 election was unusual in many ways because it was the first time we really saw uh, the government and the opposition at the time really both pledging to increase spending. Even in 2017, the Tories ran on a message of increased austerity and it didn't work for them. But the spending increases that were being pledged by the, by the Conservatives were comparatively small compared to what's happened to what they've had to do in response to COVID-19. And this is why. So... The first step is that the government has once again chosen to embrace that philosophy of trying to maintain the status quo and intervening to keep a market economy going on standby, if you will, until we can all come out of lockdown and things can return to normal because normal economic activity is not possible during a pandemic. The shape of this package has taken many forms. So uh, there was an initial announcement of thirty billion, a fifty billion pounds worth in Rishi Sunak's budget, but he's basically given a he gave a budget every week following that. So uh, the first major economic announcement we saw was three hundred and thirty billion in uh, either grants or business loan guarantees to companies of any size that the Treasury would stand behind there. Uh, bear in mind that the UK deficit in that in 2010 was 103 billion pounds. Then we have one of the most remarkable schemes that's ever been implemented by any government of any colour, the coronavirus job retention scheme, where the government has basically offered carte blanche to pay the salaries of any workers of any industry without um, any sort of criteria if they can be furloughed for a period to try and keep jobs in. That's 80% of the salaries up to two and a half thousand pounds that we paid. And something you'd never think you'd hear a Conservative Chancellor say there, there is no limit to how much money they will spend on it. Now, bear in mind that the OBR estimates that this scheme costs about £21 billion a month. They've already extended it by a month. So it's going to run from, you know, uh, 
April, May, June. So it's going to cost at least 60 billion. It may have to go on longer than that, depending on how long the lockdown is in process. And then remember that figure from 103 billion pounds in 2010 for the deficit? Well, the Treasury announced uh, last week that it's seeking to raise 180 billion through issuing new UK government bonds before the end of June this month. The government's also increased its what, what's called its contingencies fund. That's the amount of money that's kept back in reserve from 10.7 billion to 266 billion pounds here. This is a conservative government doing this as well. This is this is absolutely extraordinary behavior for them to do. So the result of this will be that we don't yet know what the deficit for this year could be, but it could very well top 10% of UK GDP. Big government is back, albeit temporarily. But the real question is, of course, how long can this go on for? The government, of course, can't borrow indefinitely, and the shape of the state and our engagement with it has to change in response to that. And that's really what I kind of want to end this talk on asking you. So firstly, some brief conclusions. First of all, if we look at the shape of the state, it remains, it grows from the first half of the 20th century, from in, in, albeit intermittently, you know, driven by the two world wars, but it remains largely stable for the 60, 70 years that follow that until we get to 2010, after that steady period of growth we see under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. An interventionist state during this period comes from a political choice, particularly from the parties on the left, first in the new liberal governments and then the success of Clement Attlee's 1945 government in embedding the post-war consensus so deeply that not, even, that not even Margaret Thatcher was fully able to unpick it. So we see the interventionist state moving from a political choice to political consensus by the end of this period we're talking about, which is really kind of what underpins a lot of what the Conservatives have felt they can do in response to COVID-19. However, a new crisis has demanded new responses. And whilst during 1945 to 1997, arguably, we see, you know, the emphasis of the state's response is moving from national security through to social betterment, through those increased spending on health, welfare, education, pensions. It still it hasn't, it's taken on a, a, a different sort of dimension because those kind of interventions are seen as bettering the lives of citizens. But actually, in the last 10 to 12 years or so, firstly under Gordon Brown and now under Boris Johnson, we've seen the aim of 21st century government is very much trying to preserve the status quo of the market economy. Because they believe, all governments have fundamentally accepted since Thatcherism, that the market is the best way of generating wealth. And the role of the state is not to run the economy, but to support the best means of generating wealth and therefore revenue for the state as a whole. But I think the question I want to kind of leave you all is, is when this is all over, the shape of the state will have to change. The government has behaved very differently to every express fiscal and economic choice it has made since coming into office 10 years ago. A Conservative government that began... Uh, in 2010 by seeking to cut spending and bring it under control as a means of shrinking the state has now exploded the deficit to use their own language in response to an unprecedented threat to the economy and people's livelihoods. If we want to keep big government inevitably, the Chancellor has conceded this himself, taxes are going to have to rise. However, no government really has felt brave enough to raise income tax as a result of this. So to kind of finish this talk is I want to ask you, what sort of society do we want? Do we want to have a society of a more interventionist, expansive, but also more expensive state? Or do we want to go back to what David Cameron and George Osborne were preaching in 2010? A smaller, more individualistic, but less expensive society overall. Thank you very much for listening.